0: You're listening Listen to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to the Senior Care Pharmacist Radio Podcast. This is Donna Bartlett, your host. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Shu. Dr. Shu has a bachelor's in pharmacy and a doctor of pharmacy. He's also a licensed Florida consultant pharmacist. He holds an MBA and is a fellow of the American Pharmacists Association. He is a clinical and care pharmacist at Mayo Clinic. Thank you for joining us Dr. Shu.
0: Thank you Donna.
1: So um, first um, I'd like to say that Dr. Shu's clinical expertise is highlighted in the Senior Care Pharmacist January 2020 publication and it's titled Polypharmacy as a Clinical Pharmacist Specialist Practice. But before we jump into the article that, was, that you've written and, and shared with us, um, I would like to first um, talk about your career and how, um, how your career has evolved through the years.
0: Well, um, I started out as a retail and community pharmacist, always wanted to have my own store. Uh, I did that for 20 years, uh, and somewhere in the process, I got where the hours were kind of bad, so uh, I was looking for a better family life, better hours, not working the holidays, weekends all the time, seeing my family more. So I applied for a job at the Mayo Clinic, and they had better hours, and I got that. In the meantime, uh, while working here, I was able to earn that Florida consultant license, the uh, MBA, and a, a PharmD in mid-career. I uh, worked in the community pharmacy, and we're a fairly broad servicing of community pharmacy. We do investigational drugs, compounding, and do a lot more uh, consulting than probably the normal retail pharmacist, but the inventory pharmacist uh came up, a position came up uh, while I was already working here as a community pharmacist. And uh, so I had more training. I had more clinical training. I was a new graduate at that time with another pharmacy degree. So I applied for the position and uh, got the position. That enabled me to to do some other uh, moonlighting as a consultant pharmacist since I already had that license and uh, also started teaching. I taught in the uh, MTM master's program at the University of Florida for uh, seven or eight years and helped start the program. And then uh, I was also a visiting professor at DeVry University, and I taught multiple classes there because now I had a terminal degree and I had an MBA, so I could teach business classes and I could also teach uh, science classes, including pharmacology to nursing students that were going to transfer to Chamberlain College of Nursing.
1: Great. And what a great story. I love the evolution and I love the changes even mid-career. I can appreciate that because um, I started off in retail myself and found myself with some mid-year, um, uh, mid-career changes as well. So um, so it's great. And I think it's great for our listeners to hear that and especially um, our students um, that are in pharmacy school and knowing that um, there's a lot to be offered in pharmacy. So thank you for that. Um, so let's get into um, your manuscript that you, um, in regards to uh, polypharmacy as a clinical specialty, and it's mentioned that um, really what you're started in is an ambulatory pharmacist and that you're really seeing this evolution going into a pharmacotherapy polypharmacy service with multiple sub-models. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on this evolution and the submodels that you're talking about?
0: Yes, well, uh, before I even took over the service, we started the service back in 2003, and MTM was pretty uncommon back then. Uh, MTM was uh, something we did with the Asheville Project, and there was a coaching-type model, and then we already had established lipid clinics, and maybe some diabetes clinics were just getting started, those kind of things. So we tried that for three years before I came on board, and my colleagues did, and it just did not work. Um and we we couldn't get enough patients in the service so my uh colleagues that went before me they um uh, started their families and went to working part-time and so I took over the service and it took me a little while to figure it out but you know we I just had to mimic what we already had and we had a uh, pretty much an institution full of specialists and subspecialists. And primary care was not the main thrust of things because people come to Mayo when they've already been to their primary care their local specialists and so forth and they come here for answers for things for more usually more complex disease states and we're a destination clinic where people go there for specific things and problems that can't be solved locally. So we had to pretty much cater to the type of physicians that we had. And when we did that, we found out that, oh, well, our bariatric surgery department needed pharmacists to figure out how to get crushed medications into their patients post-op. We found out that there were a large percentage of our patients that took a lot of dietary and herbal supplements and nobody knew anything about them. Or could help them, and we had complex patients that came from everywhere else. That um, not only took a lot of supplements, but they were polypharmacy patients, took a lot of prescription drugs. And uh, more late uh, lately, in the last few years, pharmacogenomics, uh, the science has grown, and it's kind of less expensive to do the labs, so more recently, we've uh, started a pharmacogenomics uh, service, and so now we take care of those as well. In a parallel universe, uh, our transplant program has grown from the early, I'd say, early 2000s to now one of the larger uh, solid organ transplant programs in the United States, and we service those patients too.
1: That's great. Um- So you can see a lot of the things evolving there for sure. And one thing that you mentioned is um, that there's this surge in herbals and supplements and it really has evolved into a specialty area. Um, So is that because of the patients you're seeing, the transplant patients, does that go hand in hand or is that something that is, you know, something that's separate?
0: Well, they overlap some. The the transplant patients, sometimes when they come in and try to get listed, a lot of them are taking herbal supplements and so forth. And a lot of these supplements actually interact with transplant medications after their transplant. So there is some overlap there. Uh, But uh, basically, the the transplant program grew on its own because of such a high demand for organs that uh, growth was not a problem there because of the high demand everywhere for organs. So that grew on its own after we had a reputation of getting good, uh, obtaining good outcomes and short wait times for organs. The polypharmacy service really has to be sold. Um, We would get the referrals from uh, different areas and they would send us these patients and they, they could be any kind of patients. We actually get quite a few neurology referrals. And they would send us these patients because they would throw up their hands and go, well, we've done all our diagnostics. We don't know what's wrong, but they are taking a lot of supplements and a lot of prescription medications. Hey, maybe those can be causing the the symptoms. And sure enough, sometimes it is uh, supplements and or prescription drugs interacting or, or patients having maybe a little bit uncommon uh, side effects or adverse drug reactions. Uh, We we were able to help the physician narrow it down. And sometimes we discovered is the drug is doing that. So that's a little bit different type thing. And we have to sell the service to get the physicians to refer because we're totally a referral service. And we, to, to create demand, we have to tell the physicians and show the providers, you know, really what we can do for them.
1: That's great. Um, So, and you also mentioned that there's this growth in um, pharmacogenomics consulting. Could you just speak a little bit more on that and what you've seen?
0: Sure, so, in the case of herbal supplements and I think it was the herbal supplement uh, the Supplement act of nineteen ninety four once that came around, they circumvented the drug laws to make basically supplements foods well once uh, Once companies were able to sell and push the supplements the, there was tremendous growth because they, because of the, the the advertising of the health benefits. Well, it was a similar evolution with pharmacogenomics in that the labs got this wonderful gene sequencing and these wonderful gene tests where they could, uh, they could determine how people metabolize drugs. Now, at first, it was very, very expensive to do this, probably $5,000 for just a few genes on how we metabolize medications. But the technology advanced so quickly that it wasn't long before the labs could do a lot of genes for a much lower Price, a few hundred dollars, and it was really the labs that pushed the pharmacogenomics testing more than anybody else. As a consequence of that, pharmacists being the most trained in pharmacology of any undergraduate professional, uh, healthcare professional, it kind of falls into the pharmacist's lap to really know the most about how to apply the testing to drug regimens and how to apply it to possible future drug regimens that patients would have. So it was really the labs in the beginning pushed and are still pushing the genetic testing um, on how we metabolize the medications, pharmacogenomics. And it was also uh, from the polypharmacy point of view, when you're dealing with supplements, it was the supplement companies that were selling them Uh, we're pushing the demand and a lot of healthcare professionals didn't know about it. And if you pay attention to the airwaves now and to the media now, you're seeing the same thing happen with CBD and some of the uh, hemp-derived products that are out there where they're using the same marketing-type techniques as the supplements, and they're driving demand with that. And again, pharmacists are poised better than any other professional to talk to folks about CBD and marijuana-derived type products because they act like drugs, they interact with uh, supplements, they interact with prescription drugs, and we're also finding that they have implications for pharmacogenomics, too, that uh, CBD can inhibit the metabolism of drugs by inhibiting some enzymes that metabolize some
1: prescription drugs. Wow, that's great. So, definitely continued growth in that area, for sure. Um, That's great. So, um, could you um, maybe shift gears a little bit right now and could you maybe provide an example of some of a compelling case or cases that you've worked through?
0: Sure. Uh, we do get um, referrals from like 25 different departments. So it's not just diabetes, troubleshooting, those kind of things, or those kind of primary care things. We actually get referrals from places like neurology. And we've found out in several cases that uh, either supplements or pharmacogenomics had something to do with symptoms that patients were having, and so we found some drug-induced Parkinsonism, and we've also found some Parkinsonism Parkinsonism induced by uh, uh, overdose of manganese or long-term use of uh, manganese supplements, and we were able to get uh, two or three of those case studies. um, uh, Actually, they were uh, published, and I want to say one or two of those type of uh, publications we may have had in the senior care pharmacist when it was known as the consultant pharmacist. That's great.
1: Um, That's great. And so, of course, things to be all things considered for sure. So, you're talking about, you know, some certain supplements that you're finding maybe some of these trends or toxicities with. Are there common threads in general in the specialty that you're seeing? Are there some common medications or supplements? Or um, you know some things that might be considered red flags that you're always you know really um, looking at and saying oh we you know this is pretty standard if you will or very common that we see.
0: Um, with regard to supplements, if somebody's taking a lot of supplements, we're always paying attention to that. Uh, the red flag now is uh, CBD oil, or there's decent evidence uh, out there that says that it can inhibit uh, a certain enzyme called CYP2C19. And those who know about uh, pharmacogenomics know that 2C19 is the same gene that controls the enzyme by the same name that converts clopidogrel or Plavix from the inactive form to the active form. So someone can be a normal metabolizer. They do a lot of CBD oil. Unbeknownst to them, it's inhibiting their Plavix uh, where it's not being converted to the active form and they have another heart attack. So that's one example that's out there that we that's a, an, um, an example of a, a red flag. But a lot of herbal supplements also act as antiplatelets and increased bleeding. So anybody who would be on warfarin or a DOAC, uh, picks a band, something like that, they might increase their risk of having a bad bleed.
1: Sure, okay. Um, so great things to be considering too for um, for all of us um, that practice in this, in this world of pharmacy. Um, you also mentioned in the results that um, about 34% of the recommendations are accepted. And I'm just curious, is that by, um, are, you, are your recommendations to the providers at the clinic? Are they um, primary care providers that you're providing these recommendations to?
0: Um, actually, they're usually specialists, though at the time we were also seeing uh, patients referred by primary care providers too. So we were seeing specialists and primary care providers, and that was a research project by, a, um, uh, by one of our residents <clears throat> for their yearly longitudinal research project that uh, we can't really know how many of our recommendations are followed by those who come here because they come here as as a consult service and they go away wherever they came from. We may never see them again or we might see them in a year or two years or whenever there's another referral from a provider. Uh, Likewise, uh, since it was only partially from our primary care folks that usually are more local, it was really an overall type of thing. And the only way we could really tell from a retrospective, retrospective study was to go back through the charts and see where it was documented they made a change, where they went to the drug that we recommended, those kind of things. Uh, so in other words, uh, we we don't always know. We think it's higher than that, but since we're also a referral institution, you know sometimes the physicians they don't want to make wholesale changes either to the referring physician from another city or another state, so they're a little bit more conservative. So I thought 34% was a pretty good uh, pretty good number then. I also I uh, wanted to back up too that we do see some odd stuff like medication overuse headache a lot. We see a lot of chronic serotonin syndrome uh, too in our in our practice and some oddball things where people have weird diets and the docs can't figure out what's wrong with us because the people aren't eating very well.
1: <laughs> right, right. So in, so, how is the patient acceptance? Do you have any idea of that? As the, Are the patients accepting of it? Do you ever get any feedback that way that, you know, they appreciate the service and they're happy that, wow, this was finally figured out for them kind of thing? And and they're making the adjustments accordingly and adherent to the changes?
0: Actually, our our response from patients is very, very good. Uh, We get a lot of letters written from patients and they are passed on uh, over the years from administration that uh, uh, they get a lot of information from the pharmacist. They get a lot more information from the pharmacist than they get from the physician. We make a lot of recommendations. We cover a lot of things in detail. What we don't know, we look it up together with the patient sometimes because we have a full medical library. Uh, and the response is really pretty good. We have some folks actually that live states and states away that will come here and get a uh, kind of a tune-up from us every one or two years uh, from one of our polypharmacy pharmacists when things have changed, and they they drive here from long distance to get their checkup or maybe from out of the country where they live and come here once a year, and they'll they'll uh, have a checkup, kind of a a medication checkup with us too uh, when they come here from wherever they came from. So uh, we've had very positive, uh, very positive reactions from the patients over the years, uh, um, because we do sit down, and take the time, and we cover things that nobody else covers.
1: Right. That's fabulous. That's great. And that follow up must be wonderful for everyone participating, for the patient and for the participating pharmacist too. So that's just yeah. We got. get a lot of
0: hugs. Yeah, <laughs> hugs, are, hugs are good from patients.
1: Hugs are good for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Gets us through yeah, get sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so you talked a little bit too about um you know the billing and and the billing of this particular specialty and i'm assuming that there's some barriers with that too but you talked about both medicare patients and also the commercial side of things could you just elaborate a little bit more on that and maybe um the ease or barriers that you might um, come across
0: well barriers are that uh, most of these types of practices unless you have a lot of some commercial payers, either state payers <clears throat> or some other kind of commercial payers that pay enough to cover the cost, say it's a money losing service. With Medicare, we are not providers at a federal level because we haven't gotten our uh, provider status collaborative practice act passed by Congress, that uh, so Medicare doesn't recognize us as providers. Therefore, we have to bill incident two, which way underpays. The price to provide the service. So uh, we bill it because we can. Uh, there are some other models we use higher level incident to billing, which is what we use, uh, but it, re- it requires a different model where the physician has to be directly involved in some fashion and our model isn't that way. So we have trouble with the Medicare patients that you lose on just about every Medicare patient. I think in most things that uh, in medicine that you do nowadays, unfortunately, but even more so when it comes to pharmacist services. Uh, with commercial pay, payers, uh, some of them pay decently using the MTM, um, MTM CPT codes, the 9960506 and 07. Some of them pay decently. Other ones don't. Uh, but uh, it's pretty much a money-losing service, which actually restricts the services to be offered to the general public. Uh, if you have a lot of self-pay people, that's the best way to go. Uh, if you tap into that strata of patients out there that are willing to pay out of pocket for the services, of which you have to give a pretty good service because you have to give a good enough service where they're willing to pay for it over and over again. And... Uh, so that's one thing, and there's some folks that just will not pay out of pocket for these types of services, and those are the folks that really need third-party payment, and which is probably a great deal of the population and, of course, all the indigent population, which is why we have to get our bills passed at a federal level uh, for our collaborative practice and also at a state level in every state. Uh, some states have been successful with that. Other states are still struggling and trying to get that done, and we're one of them here in Florida. Okay. Okay.
1: Um- Yeah, definitely barriers for sure. So hopefully we'll see some changes in the near future on that. Um, So to wrap things up a little bit, um, you stated that um, this manuscript that you've written is uh, more of a proposal to promote the concept of clinical pharmacists practicing as expert polypharmacy specialists. Do you see ambulatory pharmacists and clinical pharmacists remaining and this would be a new specialty? And what is your vision of pharmacy in this light?
0: Uh, I think that it could be especially because even most amateur clinical pharmacists they don't really want to deal with herbals, they they don't feel comfortable with it. They're really regulated like foods, so in that space, some people feel uncomfortable or not that knowledgeable about it, other than knowing what it does and oh, it's over an aisle three. Uh, so I think there's a there's a discomfort there and probably a lack of uh, pharmacists taking the initiative to know enough about them to be able to objectively present them to patients and with all the interactions and all of the uh, side effects that they can have. So uh, I think uh, that's a space that, that nobody wants to deal with much, I think. Uh, uh, the cannabis type products is another area where a lot of folks are not as objectively knowledgeable as maybe they would like to be or could be, and uh, that's another space that we can explore. And pharmacogenomics is another space that might be a little bit intimidating for some pharmacists, or they just don't have the time because you have to sit and explain things. So these are areas that one uh, transplant is another place where you could have some specialists, but they're usually embedded in the institutions like ours are. Uh, but uh, the, these are areas that are. Specialty or specialist type areas that the average probably MTM pharmacist, medication therapy management pharmacist, may feel uncomfortable with, don't feel like they have the expertise, or they think it might take too much time of theirs. So it might be better if they just uh, refer them to a polypharmacy specialist, which is a specialist not only in MTM and basic primary care, uh, but they're doing, they have a pretty broad base of knowledge in all these other specialist areas as well.
1: So I want to thank you, Dr. Shu, for your time and insight today on polypharmacy as a clinical specialty. I do definitely see the space for it, as you have well outlined for us. Um, More of this can be um, read on, um, on this topic, in in the Senior Care Pharmacist January 2020 publication. And um, I just want to say to our audience, thank you for joining the Senior Care Pharmacist radio podcast. This is Donna Bartlett, your host and thanking you, our listeners, for your interest in senior care. Have a great day.